Ah, sweet land of liberty. Our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring. It seems that the Civil War is not over. The battle has just shifted from uh, the battlefields to the courts. And the Civil War is being litigated all over again in the courts and also in the court of public opinion as the whole history of it is being rewritten. I'm happy to welcome back to Freedom's Ring my good friend Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association, fine historical scholar. Greg, weigh in here on relitigating the Civil War. What's been going on? Well, you know, Chief of Staff John Kelly for President Trump recently made a statement regarding uh, Civil War monuments and statutes, and he said that the whole Civil War was caused because the North failed to reach a compromise agreement with the South, which is interesting um, because that's always been the language of Southern historians in their efforts to rewrite um, Civil War history. Um, the South was preparing never to compromise. They were determined to secede from the Union. And so that's a fallacious argument. And, um, you know, I, I'm constantly being reminded by this one book I've just read by Duke University professor Laura Edwards, who spoke at the U.S. Supreme Court recently during um, the eight lectures that are given per year there, but she was one of the speakers, and I, it's with the uh, U.S. Supreme Court Historical Society, which I'm a member. And I went to the lecture, and um, the lecture was based on a book she wrote, just wrote, A Legal History of the Civil War and Reconstruction, A Nation of Rights. And she has two main arguments in there. And in her main arguments, the first one is that the uh, action to basic civil rights found in the Federal Bill of Rights continually denied to black slaves, ethnic minorities, poor whites, and women um, were denied in the name of states' rights. In other words, anybody seeking basic civil rights couldn't have access to them because somehow that was just federal law and that didn't apply to the states. So the South took that very seriously. Northern states uh, were more relaxed about it, yet this was the hue and cry. This was really a cry coming from the South who were constantly being discriminated against, abused, treated badly under their state laws. And uh, they basically, state says, the Southern state says, we can define rights however we want to. And it's not up to the federal government to do so. In fact, even Robert E. Lee made the argument. He says, the reason why I, this is in a recent biography on him, the reason why I'm siding with the South and fighting for my um, uh, state of Virginia uh, and its values is because we do not believe that abolitionists, those who wanted to end slavery in the North, do not have a right, and the Congress in the North and the federal government does not have a right to tell us how to live and be moral. That's a violation of the separation of church and state. That was actually his argument. And I found that very interesting because slave owners at the time really believed that they were a government unto themselves. They were plantation owners. They had slaves. They were a law unto themselves. In fact, as Laura Edwards points out in her book, she says that this was the unraveling of the South and the reason why they lost the Civil War. The plantation owner said to the township, who are you? We don't have to obey your laws. 
or your um, ordinances and whatever. And the township said to the city government, who are you? We don't have to answer to you. And the city government said to the county government, we don't have to answer to you. Who are you? The county government said the same thing to the state government. And then the governor said to Jefferson Davis, who is the head of the new uh, uh, federal government of the South, said, who are you? We don't have to answer to you. So there was this tension and this chaos that nobody wanted to listen to anybody. There was no sense of order or anything. Well, That's the why the South broke the, down. South said to the U.S. government, who are you? We don't have to answer to you either. Exactly. So, so it created this chaos, and it created this malaise, and it lowered the morale, not only of the soldiers fighting, but it was the recipe for disaster, as Laura Edwards points out. And, and finally, you know, the hue and cry that, hey, you know, we deserve our rights. The North wins the Civil War, but then what do they do? <laughs> they, they actually lead the way in enacting the Black Codes, to basic, the South says, hey, we'll just do what the North's already doing. There's already segregation in the North uh, with blacks. They may be free, but they have segregation laws. And then, of course, later Jim Crow laws, which, you know, wasn't much of an improvement. And then we ended up with the Civil Rights Movement uh, in the 1950s and 60s. So it, it took almost 100 years. 100 years afterwards to even get justice. And still, African-Americans are still trying to get justice along with ethnic minorities, women, and other people. And that's, to me, not just fascinating, but to me, it says that the whole incorporation legal doctrine, which says that states have to abide by federal law uh, due to the 14th Amendment and Equal Protection Clause, Due Process, and Privileges and Immunities Clauses, I think is fascinating because if you look at Article 6, Section 1 and 2 of the Constitution, going clear back to 1787, the South was, was constantly defying even the Constitution itself. Those articles, six and, Article 6, Sections 1 and 2, says they're known as the supremacy clauses. Basically, states have to abide by federal law. When there's a, when there's a dispute, they have to negotiate. And then, um, you know, if the states won't uh, continue to negotiate in good faith uh, or whatever, um, there's penalties, there's sanctions that the federal government can apply to the state and, and so on. And so... Essentially, states were to basically give in to, even though the federal government was to try to work with the South and come up with a compromise um, when there's a dispute between state and federal law, still, federal law trumped state law, going back to 1787. I mean, right. the Southern founders signed on to that. And so that's what really led to the Civil War, along with slavery. You can't separate the two, states' rights and slavery. Um, that's what led to the Civil War, an extreme view of states' rights that basically says we can nullify any federal law that we wanted. The problem with that mindset, it led to the local, basic local government, even the plantation owner, who says, I can defy everybody all the way up. And that was the, what sowed the seeds of the South's failure. And I, I, I will say this, Alan, I believe it's prophetic, because I believe in the United States of America, what we're seeing with this rise of right-wing populism, I think what we're seeing is this same kind of discord, this same kind of um, defiance. Uh, it's the attitude of nullification, the idea that we don't have to answer to anybody, we're a law unto ourselves. And, and that's the irony of it, especially when a president calls himself the president of law and order. I, I find it to be absolutely disgusting, and, and forgive me for having such a strong opinion, but I really believe 
that we're seeing the unraveling of the United States of America and its constitution. Well, when you talk about defiance, Greg, you know, without uh, stepping on too many toes here in terms of the whole notion of the Second Amendment, when I ask people, you know, why is it important to you to have the right to bear arms, the answer that I get back is um, because the Constitution gives us the right to have guns to protect ourselves against the government. And, you know, I mean, uh, if you just take a look at that, the government has, you know, tanks and missiles yeah. and, you know, machine guns right. and, you know, I mean, heavy artillery and all of that. Right. And, I mean, I don't care what kind of machine guns, automatic weapons, rifles, pistols, you know, whatever you're going to you know, stockpile, uh, you know, look, uh, it didn't really help out the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas to have a pile of guns. Right. You know, it's, it's, it's a fool's errand. Right. So, you know, there may be perfectly good arguments concerning the Second Amendment, but this idea of defiance of the government really isn't a very good argument. Um, no, it's a terrible argument. Why would the federal government uh, arm the public in order to uh, take over the government. I mean, that, that's, that's an absurd argument. Well, but coming back to this whole thing, you know, I guess the, you know, the problems that uh, with the demonstrations in Charlottesville, Virginia, really kind of put the Civil War back on the map. And it, it kind of brings me back, though, apart from the issue of monuments, back in the 1990s, the Supreme Court restricted what Congress was trying to do in protecting religious freedom with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and said, well, Congress, you can do that, you know, to restrict the federal government's right to trample on freedom, but you cannot restrict the right of the states to trample on religious freedom. And so the states now have virtually unfettered right to trample on religious freedom, which is essentially, uh, you know, what the South was fighting for was the, you know, unrestricted right to trample on the rights of its citizens. Uh, it's a very, very dangerous situation, this whole concept of states' rights, isn't it? Yeah, I, I find it ironic because um, when you think about the whole Bill of Rights and you think about rights, period, I mean, the whole point was, um, and James Madison said it in his proposal for the Bill of Rights to the House of Representatives, he says, I confess that in a government modified like this in the United States, the greater danger lies rather in the abuse of the community than in the legislative body. The prescriptions in favor of liberty ought therefore to be leveled against that quarter where the greatest danger lies, namely that which possesses the highest prerogative of power. But this is not found in either the executive or legislative or judicial departments of government, but in the body of the people operating by the majority against the minority. In other words, Basically, the Bill of Rights was designed to protect the people against themselves. In fact, when it says, we the people in the preamble, the Constitution was really designed to harness we the people. <laughs> right. And, 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 and a lot of people don't understand that. They just assume that somehow constitutional freedom means that they can just make up law anytime they want to and that they are a law unto themselves. And that's the mindset that seems to be taking hold in our country, and it's just a very dangerous um, country that we're living in right now. And I just, I'm, I don't know, I, I don't know what's in the future for our country, but I am alarmed. Well, to the extent that we forget our history, and in 
our discussion today, the history that the Civil War was really about slavery. It wasn't about compromise and politics or even the economy. Right. It was really about slavery. Yes. And there was no compromise yep. to be had on slavery. Yep. You know, it either it was an all or nothing proposition. That's right. And uh, yeah, it took the blood of of you know tens of thousands of Americans to to ultimately to resolve that. And for us to then go back and say, well, we won the battle, but we're going to lose the war because we're going to give the states the right to trample on people's individual rights. After all, uh, that just makes no sense. Well, I, and I'm, I'm hearing today, I'm hearing among evangelicals, my fellow evangelicals, that our rights are just mere privileges and that we should not uh, make a demand of our rights uh, and so on and so forth. I've heard this for years since I was a kid, and it usually is among evangelical Christians that our rights are given to us by God, and it's, yes, our rights are given to us by God, but and they're unalienable. Even the Founding Fathers believed that and stated such. But now there's this reasoning that's been existing since, you know, the 60s and 70s, and that's getting louder and louder. Well, they're just, they're, um, they're just a privilege. And, uh, and, and my argument back is to say that our equal rights under the law are a mere privilege is to grant the government the privilege of taking them away, especially if those affected are those the majority minimizes, scorns, or vehemently disagrees with. And, and the frequent saying is, well, we're pilgrims on the earth and should not demand our rights. It's that kind of apathy that causes the people to relax and allow untold discrimination and injustice to thrive. I was going to say amen to that, Greg. And I think that's where we're at. And uh, uh, close out our show here. Our guest today, Greg Hamilton, president of the Northwest Religious Liberty Association. We've been discussing the relitigating of the Civil War. As we close, we want to remind our listeners here at Freedom's Ring, we don't just talk about religious freedom. We help those suffering religious discrimination. Check out our legal resources page at churchstate.org. That's churchstate.org. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.